Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Buck Anderson. I'm the pastor of leadership development at Grace Bible Church. I office at the Anderson campus, so I don't get to come over here all that often. Uh, but four and a half years ago, uh, when I started working at Grace, one of the first tasks I was given was to help with some other guys and gals find a, a second location for Grace Bible Church. And of course, we ended uh, finding this place, and it was my privilege to work with many teams uh, to help renovate and construct. And I work from the pastoral side of things with our architect and, and chief uh, construction engineer. So I'm very familiar with the, the nuts and bolts of this place, but we did it for moments like this. And it's an honor to be with you this morning looking at things from the Word of God uh, as we uh, build our house uh, this morning, as we take a look at the call of Peter. We're going to be particularly in Luke chapter 5, in the, where they're going to catch a lot of fish. So we're going to go fishing a bit this morning. But the essence of what is going to happen is that Peter, at this time in his life, will be sealed into apostolic ministry. This will be the time in his life where Jesus will finally break through. Not in a getting saved kind of context, but in an ever committed call unto service of Jesus Christ. And so I, we thought it appropriate as the new year unfolds, that we remind ourselves that the Lord is ever persistent in his calling of us toward an ever closer and an ever more committed walk with him. And so as we take a look at Peter, we're going to see how the Lord worked in Peter's life. Jesus is going to show up in Peter's office. This is what Peter's office looked like. He was a fisherman. He hung out on the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus is going to show himself to be supreme, not only in the religious things of life, not only in the matters of faith, but also as a pretty good fisherman. And I hope to, to show you from Luke's gospel what's going on. Um, Luke is a, an attempt by, by Luke, obviously, with Theophilus to uh, bring about uh, an orderly expression of the life of Christ. But it's arranged kind of differently. We're going to be here in this section here in the Galilean ministry. The first three sections of Luke will, will, is really only about a third of the book, but it will cover almost three years of his life. There's a very important verse in Luke 9:51 where Jesus was getting ready for his ascension. And of course, his death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension is what he had in mind. And he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. So the last three sections of Luke, from 951 all the way through the end, really just record the last six months of Christ's life. Although it covers most of the events, it's sort of weighted to the end. But we're sort of in the preparatory stage of Christ's ministry on earth. In the Galilean ministry, he's going to, uh, after he is uh, introduced early in the book, he's going to spend most of his time uh, in the north, in uh, the region called Galilee probably referred to Galilee by the Hebrew word galal, which means to roll, sort of like our hill country. It's got some uh, topography to it. Um, most of the ministry of Christ, in fact, will take place in this area. We're familiar with the central region, of course, as well. And then the southern region, Judea, housing Jerusalem, is actually where Peter's first call will take place. But right after Peter is called by Jesus in, in Judea, He's going to make his way for Galilee and spend the bulk of his ministry in the north. In the Galilean region, we see many things that we're very familiar with. Capernaum will be his headquarters. Kafir Nahum, the village of Nahum, is what Capernaum means. It's located on the 
the, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, a very rich, fertile area for farming as well as fishing. Peter will live there with his wife and his mother-in-law. Next door, it seems, is the synagogue that Jesus will preach in. Most of the ministry of Christ will take place in Capernaum, in the north, in and around Capernaum, and all throughout the Galilean region. Over 50% of his parables will, will be stated there. Most of the miracles will occur there. Remember the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 11, Woe to you, Bethesda. Woe to you, Chorazin. Uh, if the miracles had occurred in, that occurred in your cities, if those same miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon or in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have changed. Lots of miracles showing up throughout this region. Uh, the Sea of Galilee This will be this place of our uh, study this morning as uh, Peter is going to come off a, a hard day's night of fishing. And we're going to see the Lord meet him on the shore and call him into ever more committed commitment and ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the cities that you're familiar with in the New Testament are going to be here in the north. Uh, Jesus will, in Matthew 8, will go over to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Peter will say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God in Caesarea Philippi. Again, Bethesda and Capernaum, uh, Mary from Magdala or Magdalene, the first uh, miracle at Canaan, his city Nazareth, and uh, the Gadarene demoniac will occur in here. So very familiar areas, and we see that geography and topography is very important in really understanding how the Bible works and how we can understand the things of the Lord. Uh, as, the, uh, as we see this region, it's, it's an unusual land. It's got a lake that's about eight miles across and 14 miles north and south. But it moves from very fertile lowlands, as you see here with these crops, to what the Bible would call a mountain, as in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we think a mountain and we think of Colorado and 14ers. This is more like the hill country, some, some topography that comes up. But it's important because a multitude could easily stand in and among these hills and hear a guy speaking from a boat, which is exactly what we're going to see this morning. It's going to cause an, a natural amphitheater uh, to allow for the sound to come about. Peter will have a series of callings on his life that really will culminate in John chapter 21, but we're just going to stop here in Luke 5. But I want to let us see that the first call upon Peter's life really occurred in John's gospel, not in the north, but in the south. Very early in the ministry of Christ. In fact, John the Baptist is going to introduce him here in John chapter 1. And Peter and his brother Andrew are going to be there. Now what's going on is that they've heard of this guy named John the Baptizer, the one who is calling forth the Messiah, the one who has come according to Isaiah, according to Malachi, to make straight the path of the Lord. He's the Ed McMahon to Johnny Carson, if you will. He's the introducer of the Messiah. And John the Baptist's fame and renown has spread throughout the land. And Andrew and Peter, at least, have gone down to hear him preach. He's in a region known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. There were two Bethanies in the south in and around Jerusalem. There was one real close to Jerusalem. And then there was one east of the Jordan River, which is where John the Baptist was baptizing. Jerusalem over here, about 25 miles to the east, is Bethany beyond the Jordan. I think it's important to remember also that highly likely, Peter is what we would call an Old Testament saint. He's a believer in God's provision for his sin. 
Remember all the way back in Genesis 15, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That has always been the deal. God has provided for our sin and by faith in that, we can be made right with him. And so Peter, with his brother Andrew, most likely as Old Testament saints, as believers in the promise of God to bring about the Messiah, has come now to hear about this one who is heralding the coming of Messiah. If you want to turn in your Bibles, go go with me to John chapter 1. I'm going to paraphrase a bit on the overhead, but this is a wonderful section of Scripture as we see Peter's first call into discipleship, into ever-growing commitment with the Lord. Again now, John the Baptist is going to be the main character. We're going to see uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, uh, Peter's brother Andrew. Peter will be called Simon or Cephas in this area, uh, in this little section, but it's the same guy. But notice, that as we see beginning in verse 35, and I've taken some liberties just to make sure we know who the characters are. Uh, John the Baptist was standing, and notice, with two of his disciples, It was very routine for people interested in the things of the Lord uh, to follow after a master, a rabbi, a teacher. And at this time, John the Baptist was the rabbi, the teacher of of these two disciples that are going to be named here in just a moment. John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples and he, John the Baptist, looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, in that one phrase, I love that phrase, it sort of throws a lasso around all the Old Testament. All the the images of sacrifices, all the the terms throughout Leviticus and through all the rest of the Old Testament. The Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice, the one who can reconcile us to God is now here. And behold, as John calls him, the Lamb of God. He had er earlier said, who takes away the sin of the earth. Behold the Lamb of God, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Interesting little handoff here. They're they're following after John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, here is the one of whom I speak, the Lamb of God, and now these two disciples start to follow after Jesus Christ. One of the two disciples, the two disciples we just saw introduced, uh, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, or Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Notice the link, by the way. Earlier, he was known as the Lamb of God. Here he is, the Messiah. The Lamb of God is the Messiah, and we have found him. It might just be a way of speaking, but it also would be natural to assume that if they have found the Messiah, maybe they were looking for him. I think that's why they went down there. They heard of John the Baptist heralding of the Messiah and is preaching about him. And now they meet him. And Andrew, of course, says, we have found the Messiah. So he, Andrew, brought him, Simon Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. The idea of Cephas in Aramaic or or Petros in Greek is the idea of a rock. And that image will carry Uh, That mantle will be upon Peter his whole life. This little introduction is the first introduction of Peter to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will occur six months prior to our time in Luke. And the reason I'm spending a little extra time seeing this is I want us to see the links, the measures to which the Lord Jesus Christ goes through with Peter to draw him ever closer to himself, to draw him to be ever more committed to him. 
Peter and Jesus are going to meet up a bunch. This is just the first time. We're going to see one of the most powerful times here in Luke 5. In fact, there's uh, some other times, the one we've seen here in John 1. I take it that the images in Matthew 4 and Mark 1 are actually going to be a separate time. Because what's going to happen is Andrew and Peter are in the fishing business. Uh, They've got a a boat and their partners are James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they go out on the Sea of Galilee daily, usually at night, uh, to put a big dragnet out so they can sell fish in the marketplace there in Capernaum, ship some to Spain. It was understood that that's where the, the market extended to. And that's where they go back to. And in Mark 1 and Matthew 4, we see them fishing uh, or in the shallows, and Jesus will come and speak to them, and they will follow after him. But I take it that this is a separate event from what's going to happen in Luke 5. Matthew 4 and Mark 1 happen in the shallows. Luke 5 happens in the deep. Matthew 4 and Mark 1, they're fishing with their nets. In Luke 5, they're washing and drying their nets. I think Jesus had several encounters with these guys. And what we're going to see in Luke 5 is sort of the coup de grace, the the one that sort of seals the deal with Peter, that wins him over. And we can learn from how Jesus calls Peter, how he is also calling us into an ever close, ever more committed life with Jesus Christ. So this little private miracle account occurring now in Luke 5, where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning in Luke 5, 1 through 11, focuses on Peter. So I want you to put your Steven Spielberg director hat on, a little beret there, you know, move it off to the side, and you're going to see a wide scene unfold here in Luke 5. But let's train our minds just to focus upon Peter. Let's look at this scene through Peter's eyes, as if we're standing behind him, as if we're shadowing Peter. What Peter learned, will learn. What Peter experienced, will experience. And so this little account is designed to seal the call to apostolic ministry for Peter and teach him that Christ is his real source in all matters, primarily his competency. He was a fisherman. That's how he made a living. And Jesus is going to show up at his office. Jesus is going to show him to be supreme in his identity as well, that your identity, Peter, ultimately will come from me, not what you do. And lastly, using his competency, using his identity, Christ is going to rearrange those things, put a new ribbon around them and move him off toward a calling now that we see Peter have the rest of his time in the Gospels. After this account, he will leave behind fishing until the very end in John 21, and he will become the powerful rock the Peter we know throughout the Gospels. Yes, he'll have his downtimes, but he will be committed to an ever-growing relationship to the Lord from this day forward. This was the day that Christ won him over, not to be saved, but to be committed and leave behind some things that were holding him back. And so as we take a look at that, we can see perhaps our lives in Peter's life as well. It's an easy little passage to, to unlock This is the story of the great catch of fish. It has three components to it. There's going to be a setting, and the scene is very important to be set in the first three verses as we see the various characters come on the scene. There's going to be a miracle of a huge catch, and then the response is really the key. As as Jesus will, will teach Peter a lesson that he will never forget on this early morning 
About six months after his first encounter with Christ, Peter will now be called into apostolic ministry as a result of this encounter. So let's read the first three verses together just to make sure we we see the scene unfold. And we see here in Luke 5, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now it came about when the multitude, so there's our first character, there's a whole bunch of people. It came about while the multitude was pressing around him, that is Jesus, and listening to the word of God. It doesn't tell us what Jesus was preaching other than the words about God. Um, The multitude is pressing around him, listening to the word of God. He, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And we see it unfold now. And he, Jesus, saw, notice, two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets, a term for untangling them and then allowing them to dry for use the next day. Verse 3, and he, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. You got the scene? Remember that little scene that we saw of the very fertile land and then the, the mountain that came up out of the Sea of Galilee? Perhaps it was that place. Perhaps it looked like that. And it's almost coincidental, so it seems, that these guys had been fishing and now they're washing their nets. And here comes Jesus, who maybe had told the multitude after teaching them the night before, hey, why don't we meet down by the lake around seven in the morning and we'll continue our time. And so these two groups encounter Peter and his group coming off the lake. Their day is over. Jesus coming to the lake with his catch. Their day is just beginning. And the multitude will press in, uh, and that is the need for Christ to separate himself a bit so that he could be heard, like I'm separated from you just a bit so I can be heard. And he will choose to sit in Peter's boat. There were two boats. The fishermen had been fishing all night, we'll see here in a moment, and are mending, washing their nets. It's important that the nets are taken care of because they're the tools of their trade. Jesus then says to Peter, He gets in Peter's boat, by the way, and in verse 3, he gets into the boat, which was Simon's, and asked him, that is Peter, to put out from the land. And he, Jesus, sat down in the boat and began teaching the multitudes from there. Peter's with him. This is the next encounter that Peter is going to have with Jesus. He picks Simon's boat, probably walks out into the water, climbs up into the boat. Simon, come with me. Take care of the boat while I sit and preach to the multitude. The waves would have moved the boat around. The wind might have moved it. It took a professional fisherman and boatman to handle this pulpit that is now on the lake. But more importantly, I'm certain the scene was this. Jesus is is here. The multitude is there. And Peter is back here trying to make sure everything is steered. And he's seeing this marvelous vista of Jesus preaching to the multitude He's seeing perhaps the, the veins pop out in Christ's neck and, his, and the, the movement of his hands and perhaps the, the spittle from his mouth as he gives forth powerful words. Peter is being preached to while he sort of voyeuristically watches this whole scene unfold. And Peter will learn from this as we see now as they put out a little from the land, we're going to see this scene. 
This is a scene, actually an actual boat on the Sea of Galilee from the early 1900s. This is about the same kind of boat that uh, have always been used there, about a 20 to 28 foot boat, depending on what you can afford. It would usually house up to four fishermen. But this would be the same kind of boat that they were crossing the sea and crossing the water in, and Jesus would be asleep in it. I always had this image of this little, this little rowboat or this dinghy. You can't sleep in a boat like that, but you could stretch out in a boat like this. It could hold 10, 11 guys easily for transportation. And that's where uh, Jesus might have been uh, sitting at the front there and Peter at the back, making sure the boat was made well and, and, and stayed uh, afloat well. This is the famous Jesus boat that is in a little kibbutz in, in the, near the Sea of Galilee now. Found rather recently, you'll see the same kind of structure about a foot, a foot and a half between each of these sections here, rendering that thing about 25, 30 feet long. It was a good-sized boat, and it would hold nets that could bring up lots of fish. This is a, an actual photo from the Sea of Galilee, early 1900s of Galilean fishermen bringing up these huge drag nets that they would have had, and the weights at the top would float, and they would uh, go around with the, with the boat. And very closely here, if you see, the, at the end of the net, it's looped so that the fishermen could drag the net, could hold uh, the net very well, and they would encircle a great catch of fish and, and bring it in, and that's how they made their living. And Jesus is going to show up to, to Peter's workplace uh, and, and bring about uh, great change in Peter's life. Notice the command in verse 4 now, after we've set the scene here, Jesus is going to say, when he had finished preaching to the multitude, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. The original language is a little helpful here. When he says, put out into the deep water, it's singular. You, Peter, lead this group out to the deep water, and all of you let down your nets, because the lay down your nets and the nets are plural. So Peter is being singled out. Ever the master teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming after Peter, and he's coming after Peter hard, and he's saying, Peter, lead, lead us out into the deep water, and the rest of the guys will come with you. And notice what he says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. I had missed that before in discussing this passage before. He says this to Simon individually. He tells them all to follow him and put out into the deep water. Let's let down the nets. And this promise, perhaps, for a catch. It might have been just a way of speaking, or it might have been a promise that there's going to be something coming. Now, Jesus' command is going to be followed by Peter's trust. He is going to hear what Jesus says. And in verse 5, Simon will answer and say, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. In my Bible, I've got a big blue highlighter and I've highlighted caught nothing. That's sort of the essence of where Peter is right now. As Blake read earlier, his adequacy has produced no fish that night. Notice, we worked hard all night. And caught nothing because you fish at night in the Sea of Galilee when you're out in the deep. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. At your bidding, I will do this. Now, what we, we see is, are the words that Peter is going to reflect. We've worked hard all night, we've caught nothing. 
but at your bidding, I will let down the nets. We see that. And that's good. We see Peter's sort of reluctance to do this, but at the bidding of the Lord, he will do it. What we don't see is what almost any Galilean fisherman would have been thinking. Uh, Ten things that would have been going on in Peter's mind right now uh, would, would start off with this. Nobody, and I mean nobody, fishes the deep in the day. You just don't do it in the Sea of Galilee. There's many reasons for that. The fish can see the nets. Uh, in the day. The fish are far more mobile during the day. That's why you fished at night, encircle them with nets they couldn't see. As they were schooled up, in essence sleeping, you could catch them more easily. Peter's going, it's going to take f- at least four guys to go back out and do this. Our, our nets are, uh, are on the side and, 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 and we're not even loaded up and we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. The Beatles would have entitled this a hard day's night, right? They've been working hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will put out. Here's some other things that Peter was thinking. They ain't biting today, Jesus. They're just ain't biting. I do this for a living. And sometimes you catch them, sometimes you don't. And Peter is also going to be reminded that his nets need washing and drying. Now, this is important. Because the elasticity in the net was only preserved if they were properly washed and then fully dried. If they were taken back out while still wet, it would lose the elasticity and the nets could begin to break. This was to the carpenter a hammer. This was his tool of his trade. This is how he made his living. The nets were absolutely crucial to him. We're going to have to take them while they're still not dry, reload them. You saw the size of those nets. It's a big deal to do all this. And by the way, there's a multitude around. There's a lot of people watching. They're still there. Now, they live in a culture in which saving face is crucial. Peter doesn't want to be known as the guy who went fishing in the deep during the day. You just don't do that. And everyone around the Sea of Galilee knows that. And Peter has got that in his mind, and probably ultimately he's got to be asking this question. What does Jesus Jesus know about fishing? I mean, yeah, he's the Messiah. He's kind of a religious fellow. He he knows matters of faith and things about God, but this is the area of my competency. I know how to fish. And Jesus is coming into my boat, preaching in my boat, and now saying, lead this band of fishermen out. To the day and to the deep, rather, and go fishing. But at thy bidding, I'll do it. Peter, we see uh, in this exhibit of faith, is going to be greatly blessed because there will be a great supply. Look at your Bibles closely now as we look at verses 6 and 7 because it's so powerful. And as we teach uh, Bible study methods and observation, interpretation, application, this is a wonderful little passage to think about observation. Because as we observe, so will we interpret, and as we interpret, so will we apply. Look at the detail with which the physician, Luke, writes to describe this scene. You can certainly look in your Bible. I've got it up here as well. And I'll try to inflect the key words, at least in my mind, that that really help uh, set this scene. But work hard to capture this whole scene. Multitude has been pressing in. Jesus gets in Peter's boat. Peter's in the boat with Jesus. Peter hears and sees Jesus preach to everyone. Peter is told to go out with the other guys to go fishing in the day. Peter knows some things that maybe he thinks Jesus doesn't know. But at at the word of Christ, he does obey. And this is what he experiences. This is what they experience. 
And when they, plural pronoun, had done this, that is, obeyed the word of God, loaded up everything, turned the boat around, put the sails up, gone out to the deep, which would probably be about a mile or two out uh, from the shore. The, 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 uh, the shoreline uh, get, it gets deep pretty quick, so you don't have to go that far out in this eight-mile-wide lake. They enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets, plural, began to break. They signaled to their partners, because I take it that, uh, that James and John had also jumped in their boat, and they're perhaps fishing a little ways away, and they signaled to those guys in the other boat, remember the two boats as the pericope unfolded, now they're both out in the deep. The first boat is, is uh, bringing up such fish that their nets are beginning to break, and you know Peter's going, I knew it. I knew that if we didn't allow those nets to dry, they're going to break. Yet Jesus is going to show himself to be supreme over the lack of the drying of a net. They're going to signal to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now, that's a fish story, okay? That's some serious fishing right there. These nets, and you saw the size of them, the handles on those nets. The guys are straining, they're pulling up. The other guys come over, the, the fish are coming in. And now, all of a sudden, this great supply has turned into great danger. The response to the miracle is just perfect. Get in that scene, get in that boat with Peter. It's Peter, probably one or two other guys. The Lord is in the boat. I take it that the Lord is passive in this. I don't see him pulling up the nets, although he could have. It doesn't ruin my theology at any level. I just sort of sense him being aloof and allowing the disciples to learn. Ever the master teacher, he's kind of just letting this unfold. And through the lens of Peter now, we see what happens. All of a sudden, you're pulling these fish up and you're straining and you're yelling and you're screaming, coming over here. You know, when you catch one fish, they make a lot of noise. They kind of flat around in the water. You, you get them on the boat, they flop all over the place. How about so many fish that you're about to sink a boat? It's loud. It's confusing. It's wonderful if you're a fisherman, but all of a sudden something happens to Peter and he realizes it's not about fishing anymore. This is about him. This isn't about supply. This is about the Savior. And Peter, as we see the passage unfold, will get it. And he'll be overwhelmed with the supply from the Savior. Notice in verse 8, when Peter saw this scene that we just tried to describe, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, this is a guy who's known Jesus as Messiah now for at least six months. He's not coming to Christ here in the sense of I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. What he's saying is, I don't deserve to be in the same boat with you. I'm in a state that is far under yours and it is improper for me. Same thing you see with Isaiah in a a vision in Isaiah 6. uh, He sees the Lord on the throne and he he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a sinful man and I come from sinful people. I, I miss the mark when it comes to the holiness of God that Peter is seeing here. 
Even the 24 elders in the book of Revelation in heaven are falling down before the Lord in a sense of awe and and shrinking back from his august presence. That's the kind of image that's going on here. The fish are flopping, guys are yelling, the boat's about to sink. And Peter calms down and sees what's happening, takes it directly to the one who caused it to be and says, you and I are greatly different and I see you in your fullness now. He calls him Lord. Notice in verse 9, amazement had seized him and his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken and also James and John, sons of Zebedee, the guys in the other boat who were partners with Simon. His confession is powerful. He is aware of his sinful state. Amazement and fear by all in company of them. And Jesus will make a promise. He said, we're going to go out for a catch. It happened, didn't it? Jesus said to Simon, don't fear. For now on, you'll be catching men. Not only did uh, with Peter did we have no catch, but with the Lord, the Lord showed himself to be a better fisherman than Peter and also redirected his competency, redirected his vocation to move now into the business of catching men. The same techniques, the same ways that you've employed Peter in catching fish, now let's direct them toward catching men. And of course, Jesus will then so overwhelm them that the only time we see this phrase occur in Peter's life, in in verse 11, they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It seems at other times that they would follow him and then go back to fishing. This time, Peter moves on fully. And it took Jesus showing up at Peter's workplace and proving himself to be supreme in all manners of life to really ultimately win the day with the Apostle Peter. So I want to ask you some questions this morning as we close. And and like Peter, maybe as he had to learn, we have to ask ourselves, is, is my core competency, my core skill, is that mine or his? It can create a chasm, can't it? It can create this kind of compartmentalized life that, well, by day I'm a doctor or a pastor or a nurse or a mom or a dad or an educator. And then on Sundays, I do the things of the Lord. That competency that we enjoy, that most likely we derive our income from, is that something we sort of reserve off to the side? Can that prevent me from fully following the Lord? Has that become my identity? Am I now doctor? Am I lawyer? Am I mom or dad or teacher or athlete or student, one who is trying to gain skills so that I can go make money and derive my identity from that? Can my core competency, my core skill prevent me from fully following the Lord? Is the Lord welcome at my workplace? Or have I so segmented my life I don't ask him to help me there? I figure he's got the religious faith side of life under control. I'll go to him for that, but I'll handle my work. What the Lord is calling us to is an ever-growing commitment and an integration of our life in and around him. Like we arranged our homes to set up a Christmas tree last month, he's asking us to rearrange our lives around him, and he wants it all, including our core skill, our root identity, and our work, our vocation, whatever that might be. And maybe this morning you need to ask yourself the question, as I have all week, is the Lord asking me to go fishing with him in the deep during the day? Is he asking me to do something 
That maybe my competence says, no, you just don't do this. You don't understand, Lord. It's not done. As we listen to him this morning and maybe covenant this year to seek him and listen to what it is that he's asking us to do. He might be asking us to go fishing with him in the deep during the day. I'm asking you to commit to talking to him about that this year, to rearranging our lives around his central character and lay at the altar of his feet our skill, our competency, and the identity that we have derived from that and let him rearrange it, let him repackage it as he did with Peter. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes just to to be quiet and think. Let's just pause and think about our competency, our skill, how it is that we might rededicate that to the Lord. Father, for each one here, I'm grateful because we've come here this morning collectively to hear from you. I just happen to be the guy who is speaking for you this morning, Lord, as we all sit at your feet as Peter did and learn of you. Father, first of all, I want to thank you for the ever persistence you've shown in my life of continually calling me into an ever close, ever more committed relationship. Forgive me for the times I've rebuffed that and, and, and been hard to that, but your persistence, I pray for all of us, just, just kind of wears us out. You just, you love us into relationship. You love us into commitment, and thank you for that. Thank you for the extreme ends that you'll go to, to make a point. You showed up at Peter's work, showed him that you were a better fisherman, and you moved him to a different kind of life through his skill and vocation. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you'll go to that extent. I pray now as this new year has begun, Lord, that you might let us think and start afresh as to how our lives might be packaged and rearranged for you that might be pleasing to you as we grow ever closer in commitment to you. I pray now uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.